This series of podcasts linked to articles and techniques in coloproctology are designed to discuss the linked article in more depth with an expert in the field and also to widen the scope of the article, providing related and relevant material to better inform practice in coloproctology. In the first podcast in this series, linked to the article by Bellini and colleagues titled Procalopride for Functional Constipation Only, which you can find in Volume 20 of Techniques in Coloproctology, starting at page 433, we talked to Professor Robin Spiller about functional constipation, IBS with constipation, procalopride and how to manage these often challenging cases in clinical practice. Robin Spiller is Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of Nottingham in the UK. He's a member of the Rome 3 Criteria Board and has twice edited the British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines on the management of IBS. We began by talking about the size of the problem of functional constipation and IBS with constipation. Functional constipation is estimated to affect about 15% of the population worldwide and irritable bowel syndrome somewhere between 5 and 15% and a subset of those are those people with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation predominant symptoms. And that's a lot of people. What, what proportion of people uh, do you think can be treated with simple measures and how many of what proportion will need more intervention pharmaceutically and otherwise? Yes, so uh, it is a daunting prospect. But thankfully, um, the majority of patients uh, with functional diseases don't seek medical care. They manage on their own. And of course, we only see the ones where this fails. Um, so I would have thought that at least half self-medicate. They either adjust their diet uh, or they take over-the-counter meds. So we see a group who fail, usually failed those treatments. And so um, uh, we will fairly rapidly move from lifestyle measures onto pharmacological treatments, very likely. Mm-hmm. I know to, to a lot of people, the, where we are with this is a little bit confusing. So you're uh, one of the authors of the Rome 3 uh, criteria, which makes quite a clear definition between irritable bowel syndrome and functional constipation. And uh, I wonder if you, you know, if we get off and, and actually define what we're going to be talking about. Yes. <clears throat> so I think it's clear that um, people with irritable bowel syndrome have to have pain of some sort. And that's, that's really the distinguishing feature. Um, the people with functional constipation uh, often have very little pain, but some of them will get a bit of pain. So there is a bit of a spectrum and in the middle, it might be high, might be difficult to separate them out, uh, but that's obviously what the job of a gastroenterologist or a surgeon would be to try and decide what the predominant problem is. Mm-hmm. So, so the room criteria mutually exclusive, and uh, and some people make quite a thing of this in the literature. But in the other corner, there's a group of people say, well, it's all the spectrum of disease. Is is it helpful to try and draw a distinction between IBS? with constipation and functional constipation? Yes, well I think any system of categorization has an element of artificiality about it and in the middle there will be groups that it's very hard to put into one group or another. But I think it is helpful and the reason I say that is that if you do objective measures, for example colonic transit, you can clearly separate out the functional constipations who often have very long transits, maybe 150 hours or something, from the IBSs who, for the most part, have got normal transits, uh, under under 50, say, for example. Um, so I think there are objective physiological measures which can show a difference. We've done some research here in Nottingham where we gave um, a movie prep challenge, so a bowel prep, 
which and looked with MRI at the size of the colon. And what we found clearly was that there's a group of patients who the colon just swells up and nothing happens. And the patients tell us they don't respond to Mubicol. Uh, and there's another group who actually behave just like normal and mm-hmm. the colon is very vigorously responsive. Uh, so I think there are objective physiological differences between the two conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the symptoms can overlap, and that's where the difficulty comes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and that difference helps decide what kind of tr- how you're going to treat these people as well. Oh, definitely, because the person with the dilated, inert colon that's not responding to the normal distension um, uh, needs a prokinetic something to make the bowel contract more. Whereas the IBS patient who's got, if anything, an overactive colon, if they're given a stimulus that stimulates more contractions, actually feel worse, not better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so one of, one of the things important to understand is the underlying physiology. Uh, you have an interest in uh, serotonin in the, in the GI tract, and uh, which is pretty central to this and the actions of, of at least some of the drugs and, pri- and priclopide that we're going to be talking about later. Um, could you give us a, an overview of uh, serotonin and, and the physiology uh, of the motility of the GI tract? So uh, there's a, a, very, a great deal of serotonin in the gut. In fact, 90%, 5% of the body's serotonin lies within the gut. It's nearly all within the enteroendocrine cell. Uh, and this is a very important part of the peristaltic reflex. So pressure on the enteroendocrine cell causes the release of serotonin, which activates um, uh, enteric nerves, stimulates uh, contractions and secretion, uh, and uh, antagon- depleting the bowel of serotonin or antagonizing it effects will slow transit. Um, so it's one of the uh, most important mediators within the colon, and it's very useful because um, it's a modulator. Uh, serotonin itself acts by modulating the cholinergic system. And while anticholinergics produce a paralysis of the bowel, uh, 5-HT3 and 4 agonists and antagonists modulate it and produce more subtle effects, which are better for therapy, basically. Mm -hmm. So 5-HT4 and 3 are the the main modulators and and have their actions through increased release of cholinergic? Uh, Yes, acetylcholine, particularly 5-HT4 activates acetylcholine. There's also um, receptors on on, on afferent nerves as well, uh, which can sensitize the bowel and enhance the reflexes. Yeah, okay, so um, there's been a lot of therapeutic interest over the years in 5-HT4 agonists. Um, Tegasrod was introduced in the early 2000s and then withdrawn a few years later because of safety concerns through the FDA. Yes, um, there were. There, there was a, a huge data set, um, maybe three or four thousand people, and there were three people who had um, cardiovascular events. It wasn't clear how the drug related to uh, these events, but the company made a decision to withdraw it, and I think that was twofold. First of all, uh, the condition they were marketing it for, IBS, is benign, and they didn't feel that toxicity was acceptable, uh, and in truth the drug wasn't that effective. Um, and I think the drug we're talking about now, brucalipide, is very much more specific and more potent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think brucalipide eclipsed to diascalpide, even if it hadn't been for the toxicity. Right. And, 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 and brucalipide has a much more, uh, it's much more higher selective for 5-HT4. Yes, it, and it's, it has less uh, cardiovascular risk, yeah. basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it's been available in Europe since 2009. It's been approved by 
NICE, National Institutes for uh, Clinical and Healthcare Excellence in the UK, uh, and indicated, um, interestingly, for use in women only with functional constipation who have had six months of the highest dose of laxatives uh, and considering invasive treatments for constipation. So yes. it's interesting, women... Yes, only. so this is slightly anomalous, uh, and, it, and it's based on the fact that when recruiting patients into trials for constipation, 80% of the recruits are female. Uh, for various reasons, a constipation is commoner in women, but, but but more than that, women are more likely to take part in clinical trials. Mm. Uh, so I think um, there's no logical reason why it shouldn't work in males. There's no evidence that the serotonergic system is not important in males. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, my own clinical experience is that it does work in males. It's just that there wasn't enough uh, numbers in the trials to be adequately powered to show an effect. And we need to recognize that when compared with placebo, the deltas in these trials is typically 15%, mm. uh, which is uh, a small number that means that you need hundreds of patients in mm. each group to mm. show that this is statistically significant, not due to chance. Mm. Uh, and the male, these weren't enough males. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, and then the other thing it says is about considering invasive treatment for constipation. But just to clarify, what what does NICE mean by invasive treatment? Yes, I think what they mean is enemas and uh, suppositories and uh, anything that's put up the bottom, basically. Uh, I I don't, I mean, I think that would include colectomy, uh, but that would be unusual to be recommending that. Okay, thank you. So uh, the article uh, in Techniques in Chiropractology by Bellini and colleagues uh, discusses the potential wider uses for uh, procolopride in the GI tract, so outside uh, functional constipation and beyond. Um, but what, what do you see as the main areas of, of use in your experience? Yes, so the, the article, uh, the logic of the article is that the 5-HT4 receptor is found throughout the gut, and so the drug may well be expected to have some effects. Um, I must say the effects in the stomach are probably quite small, uh, and there may be some individual variability. So if you're really desperate and someone with bad reflux, you might try it, but I think the expectation of a f- benefit is small. The group who probably would respond would be the people with um, uh, uh, pseudo-obstruction, so the dilated bowel particularly um, that might develop post-surgically uh, as part of an ileus. Uh, now, we're used to the idea of giving cholinergic stimulant, neostigmine, intravenously. It can be effective, but it produces rather uh, worrying side effects, including sweating and, and bradycardias. Uh, and procalipride actually takes you a step further because it modulates the cholinergic fibers in the gut um, and is much safer without the cardiovascular side effects. And um, uh, there is some evidence that it's that it's effective. There mm-hmm. has been one fairly decent large trial of o- over a hundred patients, uh, which did show benefit with improved time to passage of flatus and mm-hmm. and bowel movements. So, so I think that's an area which is interesting, and I mean probably want another trial to confirm it. That was done in China, um, but it might be worth doing one in Europe to confirm mm-hmm. because the patients might be slightly different. Uh, so that's that's a useful and interesting area. Uh, the other area is opiate-induced constipation, and obviously um, uh, you want to give something that doesn't get rid of your analgesic effect but does counteract the effect of opiates in the bowel. 
and I think the calipride does do that. Uh, mm. So you can increase the number of bowel movements uh, and uh, help patients who can't come off their opiates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chronic intestinal pseudo obstructions, well, these are very rare patients. So doing a clinical trial has proved difficult. And in fact, the only published one I'm aware of was done by Professor Emanuel uh, and has, I think, seven patients in it. And it seemed to show a benefit, but the benefit was fairly small. So you, it's not a dramatic cure. Uh, and that doesn't surprise one, given what the pathology is. Yes. Um, so, but worth a try and 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 safe in that condition. Yeah. Well, so that's that's very interesting. So the um, the, the latter group is something obviously surgeons aren't going to come across very often, if ever. But mm-hmm. certainly the pseudo obstruction and the and the opiate induced ileus are something we see all the time. So that's uh, once we've corrected the other underlying causes, um, pride is something that perhaps we yes, can it's reasonable, and you can give it by mouth, or we can give it intravenously. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, in, in we, we alluded earlier to this spectrum of uh, constipation predominance, irritable bowel syndrome, and functional constipation. Well, what do you see of the role of procalipride and other 5-HT4 agonists in the treatment of IBS-C? Yes. So, as I said, it's not. It's been licensed for treatment of chronic constipation mm. or functional constipation. Basically, mean the same thing, um, and. Um, uh, but not for IBS. Uh, and the logic for that is that uh, if pain is the predominant uh, complaint, uh, that's likely, our understanding is that reflects tension in the bowel wall. And if you give a procalibri, which stimulates contractions, it's likely to make the pain worse. And in fact, these patients um, don't really need a prokinetic. What they possibly need is a smooth muscle relaxant mm-hmm. or something like a beverin or buscopan, which might relieve the pain. Um, so, so I would say, recognize your IBS patient, and you may say, well, how do I do that? And a very useful tip I've got is that um, you judge the symptoms by the company they keep. Uh, so sometimes it's really difficult to tease out what the problem is. But if this patient with constipation also suffers from headaches and backache and feels tired mm. and can't sleep and has palpitations and breathlessness and has troubles with intercourse, then this is a typical IBS patient. So, mm. And it's one of the things that makes them rather difficult to manage because they have a plethora of symptoms. Mm. And many doctors who are used to dealing with one defined symptom find them confusing and, let's be honest, irritating. To, that with this. But, in, but I think it, it's worth knowing that this is extremely helpful. And the more they tell you these other symptoms, the more confident you can become that that's what they've got. And what does it reflect? Well, it reflects... Uh, an abnormality of pain processing in the brain, which is a feature of IBS. Mm. They're hypersensitive, not only to stimuli from their gut, but also from their lungs and their heart and their skin and their, their back. So so there is an overlap there with fibromyalgia, for example. Mm. Severe IBSs often have fibromyalgia. Um, and it would become apparent um, that if that is the problem, then the treatments should not necessarily be focused just on the periphery, but should also include some sort of central mm. uh, treatment. And that might range from amitriptyline, which is very useful for pain sensitivity, uh, to hypnotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be very effective mm. in the IBS patients. What, of course, we've got to avoid doing is confusing them with the functional constipation with the atonic colon who might benefit from surgery. Yes. Uh, because the IBS patients for sure will not benefit. So the people with the functional constipation, the people just have constipation as a symptom, 
as defined in the in the Rome Three criteria, but pain is missing from that as a yeah. They've a, got very few other symptoms. Yes. They're often quite uncomplaining people, yes. and they just say, "Well, I uh, my bowel once every six weeks." And, and so we talked a bit about five HT four uh, agonists. There's quite a few other reasonably new and some older agents around. Which what's the uh, what's the first line, second line, etc. Yes. So mind? so I think. Um, uh, the cheapest and simplest uh, laxative probably is uh, a macrogol, mm. and these are widely used, uh, and they are highly effective. Number you need to treat is usually pretty low, uh, two to four, say. Um, what they don't do is alleviate the pain of IBS because they work by distending the bowel and increasing mm. the amount of water. They soften the stool. Uh, and that's very effective. But if you've got IBS and you've got a sensitive bowel, then actually stretching it can make it mm. pain worse. So they may complain about that. Um, other treatments for the functional constipation group, other than Prucalipide, would be Bisacodyl, which mm. is highly effective. Uh, 10 milligram dose produces strong contractions. Again, one of the limiting factors might be pain because they do produce strong contractions. Um, but it's a very safe and cheap treatment and well worth trying. Um, other things which are sort of um, not in profile anymore, but can be equally effective. Senna, cheap, mm-hmm. over the counter, available. Uh, sodium docosate has not been uh, widely studied. There's not much evidence that it actually works, but clinical practice suggests that it can it's be effective used, yeah. and it's very free from side effects and mm-hmm. it's cheap. So that's also in its favor. And then for the IBS patients, uh, sometimes a bulking agent like Espagula will soften the stool and give them some relief. Uh, and it's got slight advantage, with, especially with the mixed bowel habit, is that it can both soften stool and uh, fur, uh, increase the consistency of loose stool. So mm-hmm. in, in, if the patient's a sort of mixed bowel pattern, Espagula can be helpful. And there are trials that suggest that it, that it is effective and number needed to treat is about six. So uh, I think you will notice that for many of these uh, treatments, the number needed to treat is quite high. For mm-hmm. calibrate, for example, is eight. Yes. Um, so you will get, when you offer any treatment, you'll get a placebo effect, you'll get a spontaneous improvement that's related to time or some change that you're not aware of, uh, and then you get the specific drug effect. Um, and I guess when you've got numbers needed to treat of four to eight, you recognise that many times you'll try one and it doesn't work, you try another. Mm. And um, I think that's entirely reasonable and and not unreasonable of the patient to expect to be able to try some different ones mm. because each tr- treatment has got a range of, of side effects and profiles uh, that, that differ. So turning, Coming back to Procalipride specifically, uh, you need to warn your patients that about one in ten will get a headache, but interestingly, as with many of these serotonergic side effects, it's transient. It only is, it's a first dose phenomenon. And usually after a day or two, it's no different from mm-hmm. placebo. Um, the other side effect is nausea. Uh, and that's, uh, that's one of the reasons that killed the 5-HT3 agonists. We did some work on 5-HT3. They also are laxatives. Yes. But they make you go pink and make you feel sick. So no. <laughs> yeah, they make you flush. Yes. So, so again, it's the first dose. It doesn't it does not continue? But it's a bit alarming, and so that's uh, never going to be very popular with the patients. Um, the macrogols, as I say, they work. They soften the stool, but people complain of distension sometimes. Mm. So that may be a reason. 
not to use them or perhaps to combine them with precalified. That's the other thing. Because mm. these drugs actually have quite different modes of action, they can work together and you may get a better effect. Okay. And then the, the newer pro-secretory agents? So there's a range of 5-HT4 agonists uh, like uh, Velocitrad and Pulmotrag and, uh, that are coming along. They're very similar to brucalopride. Yes. Uh, I would expect them to uh, be as good as, but not particularly better. Okay, thanks. And then in constipation, obviously, uh, this is for mainly a surgical audience. Uh, when, when do you think it's appropriate to stop pharmaceutical, pharmacological treatments and move to considering surgery for somebody with functional constipation. And I think it's clear that this is this is where the differentiation between IBS and functional constipation is extremely important, is it because never you never get a good result operating someone with IBS. Absolutely not. <clears throat> and I think when you're when you've decided they haven't got IBS, and as I say, it is relatively easy to identify these folk by their associated psychological features. Uh, then you've got to be really careful about obstructive defecation because uh, up to, it depends on the series, but <clears throat> people who express an interest in it see a lot of patients, but uh, in many series maybe uh, a quarter of the people with resistant constipation in tertiary care have got obstructive defecation, so there's a behaviour abnormality. Paediatricians are very familiar with it, that the, the children won't defecate mm. and they have uh, some reasons for not wanting to defecate, either it's painful or they're trying to exert control in a battle of will. Um, but so that behavioural abnormality can certainly persist and or even develop in adulthood and that's best treated by biofeedback. Uh, and, uh, but you need to suspect it first and then do some confirmatory tests. The commonest one is the balloon expulsion. You put a 50ml balloon fill it with water and ask them to expel it in in, pri in private. And if they can't do that within a minute, then there's something wrong with mm. the way they're defecating and they might benefit from that treatment first. Um, there's a slight problem with obstructive defecation in that people who've got slow transit and very hard stools may develop a secondary disorder yes. of defecation because expelling a small pellet is actually pretty difficult. Um, so, so in some cases, it's not clear whether the defecationary disorder is primary or secondary, in which case uh, uh, initial treatments with Muvicol or Procalopride are certainly worth doing just to see whether they correct it, but don't be surprised if it doesn't. Yes. So if you've got through that lot, excluded the obstructive defecation, still got somebody with a, a colon which is dilated and, 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 uh, and inactive, it's really nice to have an objective test. And um, in Nottingham, we've got an experimental technique, which we hope will become widely available, and that is to give a, um, a litre of movie prep, which in a normal colon distends the ascending colon within an hour uh, and causes it to contract quite vigorously. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly in the patients we've studied with functional constipation, you can see clearly that the colon, instead of being 200 mils, becomes 600 mils. Yes. This is the ascending colon only. The image with MR, is it? Or? Yeah, with MR. Yes. Yeah. So it's non-radioactive, quite yeah. suitable for uh, any age group uh, or sex. Um, and um, uh, somebody with very little response, you could be pretty confident that they're not going to respond to uh, most treatments. And if their symptoms warrant it, then uh, a colectomy would be reasonable. Mm. Um, the other thing you could do is, uh, if you don't have access to MR, is to put a manometer catheter in the colon and squirt in some bisacodyl. Mm. And again, you know, nearly 
all normal people will, will respond with a very vigorous, strong contraction, mm. which you can detect. And if someone's got a colon that doesn't respond, it suggests there's some problem with nerve or muscle, uh, again, which is unlikely to respond to any pharmacology, mm. because the dose you're giving, when you give it as a contact laxative down the tube, is very high. Uh, so it, for my mind, it would be nice to have some sort of confirmatory objective test that mm. the colon really was How about nu- nuclear medicine uh, role in there, you know, a scintigraphy where the holdup is, how much it's small bowel, large bowel, Yes, yes no, I think you're right. Uh, I think a very prolonged pan-colonic delay is useful diagnostically. Um, we certainly do it here in Nottingham. Uh, and. Um, the, the pan-colonic inertia, where even the right colon doesn't clear, uh, is, is certainly the group that you'd be considering colectomy. Very useful if it shows that there's a delay, but it's all on the left side. Mm. Then that points you towards the idea that it might be obstructed defecation. Mm. Pursue that a bit further. So yes, I think identifying left-sided versus pan-colonic delay is useful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well. Um, well. Thank you for that. Just. 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 Finally, and I think I know what your answer would be as a gastroenterologist is: who should be treating people with functional constipation? Yes. Well, I'm biased, of course. I mean, I think really you you need to have an interest in this area. It can be quite frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to be methodolo- methodological to take each step uh, and give it time to work and not to rush to a simple solution. Patients often come in and say, I want it cut out. And I always worry about that Mm. because I feel that they've got the wrong attitude to surgery, that it's potentially hazardous. It shouldn't be undertaken lightly and it really should be a last resort. And you need somebody who's got an interest in the condition can identify these uh, three important groups, the the IBSs, the obstructive defecation and the, the inert colons and you need to spend, be able to spend some time doing that. And I would say that it's best done by a specialist neurogastroenterologist, to be honest. No one like you. Well, Professor Robin Spiller, thank you very, very much. My pleasure.